0: From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and SiriusXM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on SiriusXM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here is your host, founding director of Wharton's work-life integration project, and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
1: Mike Bontrager founded Chatham Financial in 1991 and continues to serve as CEO. Luke Zubrod is the firm's director of strategic initiatives. He works on ways to advance Chatham's market impact and organizational culture, including initiatives that strengthen civil discourse, Within the firm, Mike was honored by Ernst and Young with an Entrepreneur of the Year award in twenty fifteen, which is a a coveted award uh, and recognizes those who demonstrate excellence and extraordinary success in innovation, financial performance, and personal commitment to their businesses and communities. Mike has an MBA from the Wharton School. I'm proud to say. As a Wharton professor, we like to see our alumni out there doing well and doing good. And in this episode, we have a conversation about what's called the multiple or the triple bottom line approach to business. And that is businesses focus not just on making money, but on what social and environmental impact organizations have on their world, on our communities. So now, listen and learn about how Mike and Luke and Chatham Financial are changing the way this financial services firm strives to do business by building trust in all its key relationships. Welcome, Luke and Mike. So great to have you here.
0: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Well, um, before before you founded uh, Chatham, Mike, you spent nine years in various credit, corporate finance, derivative roles in New York and Switzerland. What about the industry and your previous work made you decide it was so critical to creating uh, a multiple bottom line company, Chatham Financial?
0: Well, actually, uh, in those nine years, I, I, uh, I kind of went in to learn just, uh, I learned credit and banking, and that's really why I went in. I didn't think I was going to stay long, and I really didn't think that finance was a long-term career for me. Hmm. Um, However...
1: What did you think you were going to be there? I
0: I wanted to uh, start a company that's probably more... I was more interested in the marketing side. I thought Hmm. that uh, finance was anything but creative. Um, I found out in nine years being there that uh, I fell in love with finance, Hmm. loved it, and uh, found out as... That it can be incredibly creative. As a matter of fact, I think we found out in 2008 potentially too creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really did enjoy finance, and um, I just ended up combining that with this uh, this interest of starting a new company. And um, so I I actually was in the finance uh, in the finance world, actually really enjoying in the finance world. And there's a lot within finance that was just uh, I found compelling and good. Um, like what? Um, I mean, if you look at the way that um, I was in the – I ended up in the derivatives group. I was Mm -hmm. a derivative sales guy in New York, and I really just enjoyed the clients. I mean, there was Mm -hmm. – we were creatively solving the problems that they had in terms of uh, getting rid of risk Mm -hmm. um, that they had on their balance sheets. And so uh, that was very – it was very satisfying to actually be at a place where you could put together structures – that, um, that really solved real problems, mm-hmm. and that was that was very gratifying. And you build great relationships with uh, with clients.
1: So that client impact was really important to you.
0: The client impact was really important, yes. But I also, um, you know, had an interest in building something different. Uh, there were a lot of things that I saw that were happening in terms of just the culture that was there. That many things were just so many mm-hmm. great people. But also we were being kind of pushed in directions sometimes that I was not entirely.
1: Could you say um, more about like what, what the problems with the, the culture of the financial services world were that you wanted to somehow create a, an alternative way that would perhaps avoid some of those, uh, those problems?
0: Yeah, I think that some of the, um, the cultural issues that at least that I saw that were putting me in kind of conflict sometimes is that um, – we were not always um, put in a situation where we were on the the right side or we were on the same side as the client. Um, Hmm. That's not true in all areas of banks, but in in the area that I was in, um, we were in a lot of times um, having to decide, especially when we're working on a very um, complex type of product uh, where you had clients that were not terribly sophisticated you're in a place hmm. where you're really deciding your own profit margin. You're deciding how much profit you should be making out of a trade. Um, and it wasn't necessarily always at the place where it was in the long-term best interest of the client. Hmm. And that w- I was in conflict of saying, because I wanted to do, as many people uh, in financial services firms do, as most I would say, they want to do the right thing for clients. Sure, um, But you're kind of in that place where sometimes you – are, are you sacrificing your bonus to do the right thing for the client or are you not? And I've said I, I mm. want to be in a firm that is actually or creating a situation where you're not put in that, in that situation.
1: So, so Mike, when, when you founded Chatham Financial, what was the, what was the founding idea or principle that, um, that enabled you to somehow circumvent those ethical dilemmas?
0: I think one of the things that um, we wanted to do is we wanted to build a uh, we wanted to build a company that really was on the side of the client that was aligned with the client in terms of um, in terms of the goals that we had and being able to think really long term for that client as mm-hmm. opposed to by transaction by transaction,
1: which is how most of uh, your prior experience was was uh, set up in terms of incentives.
0: Right, uh, just the way things are structured just tends to push you toward let's just get the deal done mm-hmm. and not necessarily saying what's in the long-term best interest of mm-hmm. the client because maybe a lot of times um, the long-term best interest of the client may be no transaction at all. Mm-hmm. Um, where you
1: how, then earn no fees.
0: Where you earn no fees <clears throat> um, and but I think what I realized early on in, in even as I was starting Chatham was that Ultimately, um, you know, we were being hired to help clients think through their derivatives, think through how do they get rid of risk. Um, but the the actual thing that I realized we were selling was trust, hmm. and derivatives really ended up being just a delivery mechanism of the true product, which is trust. And so what we started to do is saying, how do we actually build a company? that is really structured in a way that is just, um, I guess now we use the term, I, we, we seek to maximize trust, not necessarily seek to mas- maximize profit. Mm. Um, now it's been very profitable over the long, of long haul, but the thing is, it's really, we look at it and say, in every situation, how do we maximize trust with the client? And sometimes that means telling a client, you know what, even though we're not gonna earn a fee, the, the right thing for you to do is to do nothing, um, because really we're actually maximizing the trust. We're really kind of aligning ourselves with our clients for the long run.
1: Now that that term trust, of course, has been used for a long time in yeah. the financial services world. Uh, indeed, that's what they call banks, banks right. and trusts. Right. So, so obviously that that's not uh, a completely new idea to try to be representing the idea that what you're doing as a financial services firm is creating trust, building trust, long-term relationships. So what was different about the way that you were actually going about that from what others were doing?
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's one reason why, in some ways, we, I looked for a long time for a different word mm-hmm. because trust is just so overused. And everybody Perhaps seeks, misused. Yeah, seeks to earn the trust of their clients but I couldn't find a better word. I mean, mm-hmm. look to say really what goes on mm-hmm. when a client actually starts to say, no, I've, I really think that you are aligned with me for the long term. So what we did is, um, the way we were defining trust and we actually spend a lot of time kind of talking about trust and how we actually have defined it. Um, it's, it's a, it basically is from Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, he talks about four elements. And it's integrity, um, doing the right thing when no one is looking, as mm-hmm. we would say. It's intent. And we talk about intent or the motivation that people have. It's saying how do we have an attitude of we rather than me, mm-hmm. what's best for we rather than me. Um and then the third is uh capabilities. And that is, you know, the way we define capabilities is is meeting or exceeding the excellence bar in a specific area. So, in other words, are you are you really good at what you do? Mm-hmm. And then the fourth thing is results, and that's creating a valuable, tangible action. And really, trust has all four of those elements: integrity, intent, capabilities, and results. And in, you are as weak as your weakest link. And so, we're constantly asking that question not only with col- not only with clients, like are we earning their trust mm-hmm. with Integrity, intent, capabilities, and results. But are we earning the trust with colleagues?
2: Hmm.
0: Are we earning the trust with each other uh, in those areas?
1: So, is that the differentiator then uh, that this is not normal behavior in the financial services world uh, in terms of gen- generating and trying to maintain a, a culture of trust? And Luke, let me let me turn it to you. And uh, as as someone who's Thinking about this every day, I imagine. Uh, what is it that that Chatham is striving to do, and seems successfully, uh, that is really different in terms of bringing trust into the reality of everyday life?
2: I think it starts with the multiple bottom lines. Um, you know, the the credo for a lot of companies in terms of kind of what's the keynote of their purpose as a business is to maximize shareholder returns. It's rooted in Milton Friedman's idea. Mm
1: -hmm. No relation.
2: Uh, No relation. That's Mm -hmm. an important clarification. Um, And it's, you know, this is a good thing, but it needs to be held in tension with other good things as well. Mm. And our other purposes reflect those other good things. So I, I think... Putting these things in tension, you know that we want what's best for our client. We want what's best for what we call purpose-oriented investors. Um, so investors who are uh, tied to and and embrace our, uh, you know, all of our purposes.
1: Um, there are other terms for those kinds of investors, right? That are out there. So you're using this very specific. Language there to describe investors who are interested in multiple outcomes beyond just their their profit. Uh, what what are some of those other terms that you're differentiating you know from using purpose oriented?
2: Well, I, I think we're just acknowledging that um, financial return is not the sole objective. Mm-hmm. We we want investors, employees of Chatham, uh, to be concerned about all of our purposes, not just one of them. So it it just emphasizes that this is not purely the kind of impact we're trying to have is not purely financial in nature.
1: So so that's a message that goes to your your employees as well as of course your your clients and and other stakeholders. So you were saying about bringing these ideas into the reality of of everyday life. How do you do that?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the issues that uh, came up for us and that I've been involved in is uh, getting involved in the regulatory policy realm. Coming out of the financial crisis, derivatives Mm -hmm. were implicated as part of that. Uh, AIG, um, you know, about $38 billion of their federal taxpayer funded bailout uh, went to settle derivatives contracts. Mm -hmm. And so Congress rightfully looked at that and said, we've got to make sure this never happens again. Um, And it brought a public policy interest into the derivatives domain. So it invited us to ask, how do we get involved in that? How do we make sure Mm -hmm. that as the public interest turns its attention to the derivatives market, that uh, wise, thoughtful decisions are made about this market? And, you know, a lot of companies might Sort of think about their engagement in the public policy sphere as an extension of their purpose of generating shareholder returns. Mm-hmm. But as a company who has multiple purposes, one of which is positively impacting markets, positively impacting clients, we have the luxury of thinking about all of these purposes as we determine how to engage in Washington. Mm-hmm. And so we really went down wanting to make sure that people made decisions with their eyes wide open about the impacts of different decisions that they made, some of which could be harmful to us, some of which could be beneficial. We didn't really sort of think about it so much from that lens, but really asked the question, what is the right thing for markets? What's the best outcome that both sort of solves the objectives that policymakers are focused on? And at the same time uh acknowledges the nuances of these markets and and how they work when they're at their best
1: so uh, are you uh a lone voice in washington uh you and your colleagues bringing these ideas I mean there are other people who are who are wanting to gain uh, a greater sense of strength and confidence in our capital markets and the various financial markets uh you know especially in light of how uh how that, that, uh, that confidence is weakening, uh, especially among young people, as as I as I know that you have spoken about. So, um, do you join with other companies in doing this? Is this is this a distinctive uh, approach that you take um, on your own, Luke?
2: Yeah, we we've definitely joined with other companies. Um, you know, we've developed sort of a vision of what regulating these markets well. Looks like, and we've tried to socialize that vision with uh, people who are making, you know, trying to make good decisions about how how this how the market structure should work. Uh, yeah, I think part of our conclusion as to being a part of that process is that as important as regulations are for, um, you know solving this breach between finance and society, and that breach is this ocean, this gulf of trust between Mm -hmm, them. mm -hmm. They're never, you know, regulators, laws can never sort of solve that problem. They can never create a bridge between finance and society and that companies- On their own. On their own.
1: Is that what you meant? It is. Companies need to- There needs to be something more. Absolutely. And what is that?
2: That something more is companies who- believe that they're part of the solution, that mm-hmm. they need to have an impact on contributing to trust in the financial services space.
1: Um, Mike, by having this approach to uh, a more um, a holistic vision about what a financial services uh, firm ought to be doing in our world beyond just generating profit for itself mm-hmm. – uh, building long-term uh, relationships founded on trust with clients. Um, how does that then translate into the kinds of people you attract to you, both as clients and as employees? Because um, it can't be everyone, right? No,
0: no, it's not everyone. And I guess there's, there's two different things that happen. I mean, first of all, there are certain people that are just generally attracted to to Chatham and our mission and what we're trying to do. And then obviously, we need to be very careful that we're hiring people whose own kind of personal mission and personal outlook in life really aligns with what, with what we're doing. But that is true, that what tends to happen is we've, um, we've tended to, or we've been able to build just a really a, a great team of people who are aligned who kind of come and say, I get the fact that you're trying to do something a little bit more holistic, um, something that's caring about this for the long term, that's not just so transactionally oriented. Certainly transactions are a big part of what we do. Mm -hmm. We're involved in transactions every day. Of course. But really looking at it, transactions within a holistic relationship. And therefore we are attracting those types of people. Um, They come from all different backgrounds. They're not... Hmm. um, we have people who have very different backgrounds than maybe what some other financial firms would have. Like, for example? Um, well, we have, um, we, we have people, a lot of people from military background, mm-hmm. and part of that is uh, people coming straight out of the military, and we're training them and um, providing them with the tools that they need to be successful in that area.
1: Now, are they a particularly good fit because of the uh, – you know, the the um, the foundation in a, a mindset of service uh, as as you know what they are what they've grown up with.
0: We do, and I, I think so. I think that's one of the what's one of the reasons why. Like I said, we have a lot of people in the military. We have mm-hmm. people who have backgrounds in service, whether it's Peace Corps things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like that's everyone, but mm-hmm. it's it's probably a greater percentage than than uh, than most companies. Um, but, I do think it has to do with that service attitude. It has the attitude it says, um, there's something bigger than me, um, and there's a mission that I want to be part of um, we're as Luke said, you know we're we have multiple bottom lines, we have multiple purposes, and we talk about those purposes pretty regularly mm-hmm. and that's it's front and center in what we do, and so that that becomes attractive to people who say yeah i want I want my work to count for more than just. Um, coming in and doing my job. I want to be part of building something that's different, And well, something that makes an
1: impact. And now we're really getting to the heart of what this show is about, um, and, and that is how you connect to a you know, sense of meaning and purpose uh, in people's lives, and, and so they can bring more of themselves to their work. But uh, lest any listeners uh, you know, be wondering, yours is a very successful company when it comes to Uh, the economics so can you just give like whatever you can disclose about you know generally speaking how you're doing uh, as a business from the traditional metrics?
0: Um, We are we're a privately held company we're 100% employee owned um, so we don't disclose any financial information Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know that I can say much further much more than that.
2: Maybe uh, in terms of growth um, you know we've That's a proxy. Yeah, Yeah. I I showed it up at Chatham 16 years ago as a 30-person firm, and it's 500 people now. Um, It's grown about 20% per year for the last five uh, in terms of employees, in terms of revenue, um, those kinds of metrics. So definitely, um, uh, you know, the, the growth, I think, give some perspective of just the the resonance that these ideas have with clients, Mm -hmm. you know, who who realize they're working in a very complex space, derivatives, accounting, economics, regulation. Um, And, you know, they want someone that they can trust to help navigate them through very difficult decisions um, that they aren't fully equipped to make on their own. So trust Mm -hmm. really becomes absolutely essential in- Kind of a complex space like we're in.
1: So, what does it mean that uh, you're 100% employee owned? Does that mean every employee owns, or just that you are only owned by employees?
0: It just it means that we're only owned by employees. I mean, we do have a program where after a certain period of time, people are eligible to to uh, buy stock in the company.
1: I see. S- uh, so, there's no outside investors, which gives you a kind of no. freedom. I'm sure that many other firms in your competitive space don't enjoy. Right, yes, Mike.
0: Yes, it does give you a, a, a freedom for that. I mean, it's again, you come back and say the future of the firm and where we're going is really around whether we're aligned in these purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that you couldn't find outside capital that would be totally aligned. I mean, there, I'm I'm sure there would be outside capital that would be aligned, but um, you wouldn't want to take the capital only to find out a few years later that you're not aligned. Um, so as long as with we, your clients, with your no with your with an outside investor. Oh, with the investors. Like, if yeah. an outside mm-hmm. investor came in, mm-hmm. um, so as long as we're internally owned, we do to some degree have a better control of that destiny. Um, but you know, again, I wouldn't want to say that there is no an outside investor who who would never realign. There, there certainly could be outside money that would be aligned.
1: So, Luke, uh, in in the the work of. Um, bringing people in, which you're obviously doing a lot of mm-hmm. as you're growing <clears throat> quite rapidly. How do you screen for uh, alignment on purpose and values? Uh, a lot of companies worry about that. What's what's the magic that you've discovered about how to do that well and try to reduce the error rate? Because I'm sure you still have errors uh, on, on that screening and, and recruitment process. How do you do it? I think part of it is... Um,
2: <coughs> A recruiting process that is not highly efficient. Um, you mean it takes time. It takes time, and you know people who come into Chatham find themselves interviewing, you know, interviewed by ten, fifteen, sometimes twenty different people at Chatham, uh, and the kinds of questions that they get are very rangy. Um, what do you mean by that meaning mean, pro-
1: they cover a wide range of topics yes <laughs> like, um, such as what would what would be an unusual question that that uh, I might get asked if I was a- applying for a job at Chatham Financial
2: Well I think you'll find questions that get under the hood of your motivations you know what what's important to you what do you value in life mm-hmm. and you know there's obviously a, a truth serum that you need to kind of apply to that you know people, As a company that's been pretty forthright about its purposes, values, and culture, you know, people are aware of what the right answers are. So I think Mm. it's as much a, a, um, you know, what are the right questions, but also just the ability to discern, um, you know, the genuine, the authenticity ah. of, of the answers. So, how
1: do you know who might be like bullshitting you with respect to, uh, you know, the, well, I know the company line. I know how to, I know how to spin my story so that it's aligned with that, with that company line. How do you get past, you know, that, that filter?
0: There was <clears> a, uh, there was somebody who went through this process, interviewed a lot of different people, and then, um, one of and then so we get together in a debrief session where we just talk about the candidate and really are trying to look at you know everything their competency to these underlying motivations. And um, there was one person who was who had been who interviewed is it, it was a fairly senior person who was coming in. There's a person who had interviewed, who has been at the company for probably less than, less than six months and was fairly junior, had just, I believe, come out of university. Mm -hmm. And we had that person interview this candidate. And in the debrief, the uh, younger associate just said, they were really kind of rude to me. And everybody Mm -hmm. was like, wow, that's totally not what we would have expected. He said, it became clear that when they realized that I was very junior, that I was, they just kind of blew me off. Mm -hmm. And so, which was a huge red flag for all of us and that we didn't end up hiring that person, even though the, kind of the, the rest of us heard a really good presentation hmm. and were very positive about it. So there's different things that we- So that derailed that this derailed.
1: candidate, to someone who showed a lack of uh, respect or recognition of someone who would be very subordinate to them.
0: Right, exactly. Because, hmm. you know, we look and say, certainly people provide different economic value or mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. Uh, work value. But we look and say we respect every individual, and it doesn't you know doesn't really matter how long you've been there you're everyone's worthy of respect, which of and course
1: then, fits very well with uh, with your mission to uh, bring a, a greater sense of uh, civility and uh, respect mutual respect in our society in our world yes uh, I you know always interested in the show on uh, the relationship between work and, and family life, community life, personal life. Um, you call your employees Chathamites, and you seem to care deeply about improving aspects of their work and home lives. And full disclosure, I gave a talk about my work in this area not too long ago. In fact, that's how we met. Um, and so I know that you're serious about that because I could tell from the way that people were responding to what I had to say that, it, yeah, this is this is what we're striving to do. Um, what what do you think is the highest impact thing that you do as a, as a company that that helps you to really embrace the whole person of the employee? Mike, let me start with you on that.
0: Well, uh, one of our purposes, our five purposes, is we would say we want to impact Chathamites. Well, we obviously, as you said, what we call ourselves. And there we just say, you know, we seek to create this vibrant uh, culture in which Chathamites, they can develop and they can thrive both professionally and personally. Hmm. So it's that, to your point, it's that holistic idea of saying, how do you actually think about things holistically? Um, we Believe that you know we want people to come and bring them their whole selves to work, um, and be who they truly are. Um, but the thing is, I some of it goes back to even my own some of my own my own journey, mm-hmm. uh, where I feel like some of the things that I've learned even as a leader, um, you know, how do I apply those even at, in my my home i have uh, four daughters mm-hmm. and i started to realize that in some ways what i would do is i would come to work i would be thinking about servant leadership i would be thinking how in the world can we do this as leaders at chatham and then i would sometimes go home and be this total dictatorial dad you know and i'm like saying how how, is, how what, did you I,
1: find out that that was actually happening, Mike? I'm curious to know what kind of feedback uh, uh, that you got that might have informed your view of yourself in, at home.
0: Yeah, as uh, anyone anyway, who knows if you have teenagers, you get a really good feedback loop. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a the they don't wait for the quarterly review, unfiltered <laughs> and immediate. Yeah, so it's unfiltered. So, so
1: you got that, and and how did that change your thinking?
0: Well, it, it is this idea of saying, you know, what the things that we learn. At work, I mean, the things that we're trying to like figure out: how do we create trust? How do we create alignment so that we go together as a team? How do we create that? Those same kinds of things should make us better at home. They should make us better in our community organizations. They should make us better if we can apply those same types of things um, in in those uh, environments Absolutely. that are outside of work.
1: So, what did you learn from your daughters that you then brought into your role as the CEO of your company?
0: That's a good question. (laughs) Well, I think number one is I learned a lot more humility. (laughs) That uh, how do you mean? Well, you uh, again, if you have teenagers, you realize that you just don't know everything, and things don't always turn out the way you want them to Mm. do uh, uh, on every uh, situation. My my. My four daughters are wonderful, wonderful people. Um, but again, there's, as you go through life and you're raising kids, it's, it could be very rocky. And you learn a lot of humility in mm-hmm. terms of saying you have to kind of work with people and you have to understand where mm-hmm. they're coming from and try to understand. So it's like, how do you actually use the things that you learn in one place and bring it?
1: So, did you find yourself being more accepting or inquiring uh, of other people's point of view at work as a result of you realizing, wow, I'm really not doing that as much as I? Would say that I am yeah. uh, in my home environment, and if this is too personal, you uh, can say, "Stu, I don't want to uh, talk about well, that right now." It's fine.
0: I, I'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask. No, I, I should ask your daughter. You should ask uh, my daughter. and you should ask, and you should ask my leadership team. So they may totally, uh, they course. may totally disagree. Luke, so,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this making uh, sense to you? Or in, in what way is is this story resonating with your experience of of Mike at work?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think he's a person who, I think the humility element, you know, resonates a lot. Um, You know, of course, I have to say that because he's my boss, but I actually believe it. Um, (laughs) And, you know, this is not a dictator who, you know, says this is how it's going to be. Mm. Um, You know, this is a guy who, you know, um, works with leaders who bring a lot of passion and their own perspectives about, you know, the thing we ought to do, you know, the way we ought to go. And, you know, I I see a lot of patience and um, a lot of uh, open ears to really um, take in those perspectives and try to make wise judgments that um, are not just the product of his own judgments, but are the product of, you know, wisdom that comes from a lot of different places mm-hmm. within the company.
1: Mm-hmm. Well that that too seems to me entirely consistent with the notion of, you know, a multiple stakeholder view of what's right for our our business, not just our firm but our industry and our society. You have to you have to be committed to taking in the points of view of multiple stakeholders who see the world very differently. And that, of course, is the you know the fundamental uh, grounding for solutions that indeed are sustainable. So, so Luke, you've you've talked about uh, civil discourse in your in your organization. How does that come to life? How do you actually create the conditions in which that occurs? And and how do you know if you're actually succeeding on that? We've
2: been in a, a phase of experimentation on that. You know, when you are trying to. Build a firm that um, creates trust out there with clients in the markets, mm-hmm. um, that becomes more difficult if you don't have trust in here. So, it would seem impossible. Yeah. So, it really takes or
1: inauthentic at, 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 at least. Yeah. So, what does it take?
2: Well, I, I think trust is a quantity that's always going down if you're not making proactive efforts to build it um you know gravity uh you know heads in the direction of distrust and so um you know how do you overcome that
1: uh one of the because it's inefficient right to have to build it as you were saying earlier on the screening process for for new people you have to take a lot of time to get the full story and that that requires an investment and so if you're not committed to well, hearing each other's points of view, and then and if you know, moving quickly to make decisions if for the near term, yes, gravity will go in that direction. So, so what do you what do you do to counter that that natural tendency?
2: Our thesis is that um, the kinds of uh, practices that build trust are. Uh, it's not just a wispy ideal, but there are real skills and yes. tools that mm-hmm. are necessary and learnable um, in terms of uh, building relationships with people and overcoming um, disagreements. So, you know, we are a company that has a, a very diverse set of perspectives that are mm-hmm. in any room at any time. any time. Mm-hmm. Um, there are issues where conflict um, shows up. I mean, this is um, just part of life. Of course. And so we've done a couple of things. um, One of the tools we engaged was uh, uh, some thinking uh, from a gentleman named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, He -hmm. wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. Um, It talks about why we all disagree with each other. Uh, especially on emotionally charged issues. So our whole leadership team has gone through uh, a, a book study to kind of understand the tools that he suggests. Mm-hmm. Part of that's just understanding the nature of disagreement in its most sort of elemental and primal form. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're all sort of wired to think we know what's best. And um, so his tools have become part of our uh, a common vocabulary at Chatham.
1: So what came out of the, the hate uh, discussion group? That What's the big takeaway for you, uh, Luke? And uh, Mike, I'd love to get your view on that as well in terms of using a common language to talk about how we disagree.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I could boil it into a sentence, seek first to understand, mm-hmm. you know, empathy, just really trying to understand where another person is coming from. I think it's easy for us to um, engage with people at the, sort of logic level. You know, what's your argument? What's my argument? And so, you know, we, we just talk past each other. What Haidt encourages in his book is to, he creates this imagery of the elephant and the rider. The rider is sort of your onboard press secretary. It's your, your logic, your, your thinking. Your elephant is intuition. Um, it's something that is automatic. Uh, you don't have control over it. And really what he says is that your elephant is controlling the rider, that the rider that your logic is is beholden to your intuition. Mm -hmm. And so as we engage with each other, if we're just trying to defeat each other's arguments, we're never going to see eye to eye. What, What we need to do is understand what what. What is your intuition telling you? Mm-hmm. Like, go a layer deeper behind the arguments and really try to understand where a person's coming. Well, of
1: from. course, that requires inquiry, right? You've got to be genuinely curious and expressive of that curiosity uh, in the people around you. So how does that play out in everyday life? Mike, how do you see that as part of uh, you know your ongoing efforts to build uh, a culture that yeah. really does invest in... Uh, relationships in which people can dissent.
0: Yeah. I think this is I think this is one of the hardest things that we do and in my in my view I'm not sure how well we do it or even mm-hmm. how well I do it. I mean, um, certainly going through Heights book and the the discussions that we've had has certainly in my own mind kind of raised that definitely it's, it's raised it so that in conversations I Realize I just need to be thinking that way, Uh, really trying to understand Mm -hmm. and embrace what somebody is feeling or what they're what they're saying, and really trying to get to the bottom of it, rather than which is my natural my natural tendency is like most of us, it's to argue your point Mm -hmm. right on why I'm right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's I I feel like this is certainly it's a journey for me, um, and it's a journey for others. In terms of us at Chatham just trying to say, how do we actually understand each other?
1: What's the biggest barrier to building trust with your employees in in the culture of your company? What what makes it hard?
0: I think that, uh, you know, if we go back to the four elements of trust, it's Mm. it's integrity, intent, capabilities, and results. Um, And for different people, it's different things. Mm -hmm. So... um, you know the capabilities and results, which are really your competency side. Those are at least a little bit more easy to identify. There's the ones that you know if somebody's struggling um, to really be mm-hmm. to be excellent to be in competent. their job. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Then you can that that's an easier thing in in a review, right or sure. a discussion. the The problem is when uh, you know, Gandhi uh, he said that the moment that somebody starts to question your uh, the some. The moment your motivations are in question, everything you do is in question. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that when you start to question around motivations or integrity or mm-hmm. you start to have questions about that, then, then it's really, really difficult because you're diving into a lot of really deep questions with mm-hmm. a person on why do you – why is there a barrier of trust? And really it takes people with open minds really trying to get at uh, understanding each other. And understanding why they're motivated and what their true motivations mm-hmm. are, and that's that's really hard work. And it I'm not sure indeed. we I'm not sure we do it well.
1: It's it's a hard thing to do well. Most yeah. of us spend a lifetime just trying to figure out that that's the question we should be asking. Yeah. So, Luke, can you say more about what it is that you're trying to do to help people to be uh, both patient, uh, humble in the face of difference, uh, and inquiring in a way that does indeed create uh, the kind of Psychological safety uh, uh, to the, in which people can dissent, uh, embrace differences of, of perspectives?
2: Yeah, in addition to Height's book, we've also uh, brought in an outside firm called Essential Partners, uh, mm. and they've been guiding us through um, kind of a, uh, the, the idea of dialogue. Um, you know, I think when there's uh, an element of conflict, Um, Oftentimes we uh, gravitate toward debate as our way of contending, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, toward some decision or outcome. Um, The notion of dialogue is a much different proposition. um, And the emphasis of dialogue is in understanding the other person's perspective, um, making sure that they have the opportunity to feel heard um, and that they, in fact, are heard.
1: You'll be pleased to know that uh, you know, that I teach this stuff here in our course on leading teams. I just spent uh, the day with uh, undergrads and MBA students on methods for creating you know richer conversations in which mutual learning is the aim. And the essence of it is say what you think and then inquire as to how other people see uh, the same situation. You know, here's what I think. What do you see? Differently and to really practice that in the micro details of everyday conversation is is a non natural thing to do, but so so important if you're going to try to get people talking with each other rather than across or around or through each other. Um, There's so much more I want to ask you about, but we only have a couple minutes here, so let me get to one last question before we wrap up, and that is, uh, what advice would you have for people out there listening, uh, especially in the financial services world? For what they can be doing to create a greater sense of harmony in their lives between you know who they are and who they show up as at work. Yeah, I mean, what do that, you think? And then, Mike, I want your wisdom on this too. And then we got to go.
2: It's a great question, um, and I feel like all of us are um, in a lifetime venture to kind of answer that question well. Um, you know, and I think for some that may involve uh, answering it within whatever context they are presently in and for others to gain that kind of integrity where um, their work is an extension of the kind of impact they're trying to have with their life. Mm -hmm. Um, They may need to sort of repoint them, you know, find a new job. Um, So I, I think that, you know, the highest order... Analysis there is, um, you know, what kind of impact am I trying to have in my life? To To really um, ask yourself that question, and can I have it in this
1: context? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mike, what would you say?
0: I guess I would say that I, you know, as as I say to the company all the time, I say every, uh, you know, culture is made in the thousands of interactions that happen every day, and every interaction is either a trust building interaction or it's a trust destroying interaction. Um, Generally, there's no real neutral. Trust uh, is at stake every, every single convers- exchange. Yeah. And that's where it's those thousands of conversations mm-hmm. and interactions that are collectively creating your culture. Mm-hmm. And so the real question is you, you might not be able to control the whole culture, but you can control your culture. You can control kind of what your relationships are. Um, so I think my advice is think about that. Control that part and make sure that what you're doing is really trust building and not being part of. If you see a lot of trust destroying around you, to Luke's point, maybe you get to a place where you say, I just can't do this anymore. But you know what? It's I think it's amazing when people really start with the attitude of trust and kind of put themselves out there um, that a lot of people respond in a trust-building way. And that trust can start to, uh, to uh, continue to blossom. And you've got uh, you've got more and more trusted relationships if you become that kind of person and you're known for Be that. the
1: change. Yeah. Referring back to Gandhi, who yeah. you spoke of earlier. Uh, so we, we, maybe I can squeeze in one more here, Mike, about now taking it from the very micro and how each and every single mm-hmm. one of us can have an impact on the the culture uh, that, that surrounds us in the everyday interactions we have by treating people as though they're worthy of dignity and inquiring as to their point of view. Now, at the at the super high level, what is it that you hope Chatham Financial will be doing to make the world somehow better? In 20 yeah. seconds, if you could summarize that.
0: <laughs> well, we have something that we call our quest. It's more than a mission. It's a quest. You never know if you're going to actually be successful in this quest. But our quest is really to be a model, uh, to model and catalyze the restoration of trust in the capital markets. That's a huge quest Again, as I said, we don't know if we're going to be successful, but we want to be a kind of company that says, look, we can model it. You can be successful and really model and be be a company that really advocates and and creates a trusted environment. And we want to catalyze it, meaning we just want to essentially encourage other companies that some of these concepts resonate with to join. And because we're clearly not going to make the big impact on capital markets by ourselves.
1: So. Mike, uh, Luke, thank you so much for spending the hour with me and uh, with our listeners tonight. How can listeners find out more about what you're doing at Chatham Financial in your quest? Okay.
0: Uh, You can certainly go on our website, www.chathamfinancial.com. And we have areas in there that talk about really our purposes and values. And um, if you're interested in finding out more, you can certainly – Uh, contact us through the website.
1: Awesome. Mike, Luke, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Bontrager and Luke's Abroad and that it stimulated some new ideas for you about how it's possible, and in this case, even for a financial services firm, to truly consider Indeed, invest in all their key stakeholders, employees, as well as clients, as well as our society and the entire industry, to to think about those interests in other than purely economic terms. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. How about trying a small experiment by being mindful of how a single, let's just take one person or group who matters to you in your life, and think about that person or that group, could be at work, could be at home, could be in your community. What could you do in the next couple of days that would strengthen trust in that relationship, that would build a greater sense that they know that you have their interests in mind and that your intentions are to try to do well by them. What could you do? Small thing, doesn't cost you much, to make that happen. So when you do that, when you consciously, deliberately, intentionally try to build trust in any key relationship in your life, What do you discover about the process of building trust and about how you're thinking about that relationship and the relationship itself, how it might change? How do people react? Give that a a try and let me know what you find out. I would love to hear from you. You can write to me at Wharton.upen.edu or at Stu Friedman on Twitter. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.